grace to you and peace in Jesus' name, children of God. Amen. This was a hard sermon to write. And I want to explain to you why that was. I'm going to take you a little bit back into kind of behind the scenes of how I as a Lutheran preacher go about writing a sermon. And so to do that, I'm going to ask you to make sure that you've got your bulletin handy and are ready to kind of flip back and forth between the two readings uh, this morning, because I'll be referencing them pretty frequently. But why was this a difficult message to write? When you're setting out, right, the first thing you have to do is decide what text it is you as the preacher are going to preach on. And sometimes that's harder to pick than other times. Right now, since we're working our way through the Gospel of John, the texts are kind of picking themselves, right? I can pretty easily just say, all right, here's, here's sort of the next big event, the next step in the sequence of John's Gospel. Then I sit down with that text, read it in whatever the original language is. For the New Testament, this text, that's Greek. If it were an Old Testament text, it'd be Hebrew. Having done that, I go and I read the thoughts of other scholars, other preachers on what it is that this text is teaching, what's the, the point of this text. But then here's the difficulty with the text that we're reading this morning, this gospel reading. As a Lutheran preacher especially, something I come into a text looking to find, to present to you on Sunday morning, is the law-gospel interaction. Something in this text is going to talk to us about our sin, our human brokenness ever since the fall, our original sin, the ways that sin manifests itself in our lives, right, as the actual sinful actions. And then in this text is supposed to speak to us something about salvation, Jesus, how he perfectly fulfills God's law for us, how he provides for us what we need in the eyes of a holy God. There's no sin in this text, though. No one does anything wrong. No one breaks any of God's laws here. No one is doing anything that requires forgiveness, that requires a, a Savior. So there's not really exactly gospel either. There's, there's no specific comfort given to sinners who've struggled with a particular sin where I can take this text and say to you, look, Here's where that sin is shown to be forgiven through Jesus. This text doesn't really do either of those things. It wasn't sinful for the young, the young newly married couple in this wedding to have misplanned, right, miscounted their guests, whatever it was that happened that caused them to run out of wine. That, that's not sin. You can't preach the law based on that. It wasn't sinful that they were there drinking wine, right? Jesus... Jesus makes six more big old jars for them. How am I supposed to preach the law and gospel to you? There's a tactic that sometimes preachers try and use when they run into this issue that's technically called allegory. And what that means is you take a biblical story and you kind of stretch it and massage it a little bit and interpret it in this symbolic, allegorical way that's going to let you understand things in a, a spiritual, symbolic light. And as I was doing my research for this morning, I saw some preachers who did that, who talked about the, the lack of wine, right, running out of wine as the lack of natural righteousness that we sinners 
are confronted with. And then Jesus, right, filling up our hearts with, with his righteousness, providing even more than we could ask for, and it's the best. But if you pull up our text again and you look that over, does that really seem to be what the point is here? It doesn't seem like a natural reading of the text. They ran out of wine. Does that mean that we run out of righteousness and Jesus has to supply more? That's iffy. What do you make of Mary's role in all this, if that's the idea of this text? Is the number six of the stick stone jars supposed to be symbolic of something? Right? When you, when you try and pull a Bible text and stretch it to fit around something that it's not actually saying, you open the door to run into all kinds of different uh, difficulties. And these are all the difficulties that I ran into as I was trying to write today's message. What does this text actually teach us? So I went and zoomed out a little bit. And I think I have an answer for us this morning. But the only way we find an answer is if we, again, zoom out a little bit, look at this text in the context of everything John is going to try and teach us about Jesus, our Savior. So what do we learn from the wedding at Cana? Again, you probably noticed because I pointed it out that we only had two readings this morning, and that wasn't an accident. I didn't forget one. Part of what I want us to do to to understand this text, to understand what's going on here, what's being taught, is to understand a little bit more about the Apostle John. John was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and seemingly John was one of the very first two He had, at one point, been a follower of John the Baptist, who had preceded Jesus. And then when Jesus came to follow, to to be baptized by John the Baptist, John the Baptist points out Jesus to all his disciples, says, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away your sin, the sins of the whole world. From that moment on, this John, who had been a disciple of John the Baptist, starts following Jesus. Years later, that John, who had followed John the Baptist and went away following Jesus, he would write five of the books that we have in the New Testament. Second only to the Apostle Paul. He would write three letters that we call 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He would write the book of Revelation, and he would write John's Gospel. We read from two of those this morning, 1st John and John's Gospel. And here's my rationale, again, behind picking those particular two readings from John's canon to, to focus on today. The letter of 1 John is a sermon on John's gospel. What is a sermon? Right, I talked to you a little bit about the process of writing a sermon, but let's ask that question. What, what is a sermon? Maybe you call it a talk or a lecture or just a verbal explanation of a biblical text. That's what 1 John is. It's an explanation of John's gospel. It's, it's an explanation of all the things that took place in Jesus' life as John the apostle himself, a man who accompanied Jesus through in his entire public ministry, explains these things to us. And I figured if I was wrestling with how I was going to preach on John's gospel, this portion of John's gospel this morning, maybe I should just go and see how John himself preaches on his gospel, preaches on the life of Jesus. The letter of 1 John unpacks for us the meaning, the 
the intent of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, in terms of what God does for us through all these things, in terms of their impact on our eternal lives and our earthly lives. So as we keep going in our walk through John's gospel over these next months, remember this reading from 1 John. Remember what it is that John teaches us here. What John teaches in 1 John explains to us everything that we read about the life of Jesus. So let's go into the account that we're looking at this morning. The wedding at Cana is unique to John. None of the other gospel writers mention this. They all start Jesus' ministry off in a different way, in a different place, with a different miracle. Now, John was the only one of the gospel writers who was actually present for the wedding at Cana. John, again, one of the first disciples of Jesus, one of the first two. When our text says that at that wedding, Jesus' disciples went along, that's only talking about probably five of them. That's, as far as we know, the only five who were following Jesus yet. So Matthew, even though he was originally one of the 12, wouldn't have been there. He didn't witness this. Mark, Luke, neither of them are members of the 12. They're disciples of Jesus in a broader sense. They're followers of Jesus. They were Christians, but, but they weren't the t- part of the 12 disciples. John was the only one who was there at Cana to witness this going on. And you'd maybe want to explain it that way then, right? This is, that's why John is the only one who tells us this story, because John was the only one who was there. But I don't know that that's going to explain it all for us. Again, Matthew was one of the 12. Surely he heard this story later from the first five. Mark and Luke both knew some of these men who were there that day. Surely they had heard this story. Why is John the only one who tells us this story? Why is John the only one who starts off his gospel this way? There's more to it than simply the fact that John was the only eyewitness. John is teaching us something. John is telling us something with this story He has a particular reason for starting his gospel off this way. All of the gospel writers had a particular motive or a particular purpose in mind as they wrote their gospels. You've got Matthew, the first gospel in our New Testaments. He wrote his gospel to convince other Jews that Jesus was the promised Messiah, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. And so through all all throughout Matthew's gospel, you find these references to Old Testament prophecy, this, that, the next, that Jesus was fulfilling throughout his ministry. Matthew's laser focus was on bringing his fellow Jews to recognize, here's the Messiah we've been waiting for. Mark, on the other hand, written more so for Gentiles. Mark doesn't wrap himself up so much, although there are some references to the Old Testament in Mark's gospel. But what he's really interested in is showing Jesus' power over the kind of spirits and forces that Gentiles worshipped in their pagan lives. And he wanted to show them Jesus is greater. Jesus is more powerful than all these things. So Jesus in Mark's gospel is doing miracles, is casting out demons constantly. And then you've got Luke. Luke kind of balances both of those perspectives. Because Luke isn't writing so much for one ethnicity, one, one group of people, as he's writing to skeptics. Luke wants to write a very thorough, well-researched account of Jesus' life. And so he fills it out with all kinds of details about who was present at what time and where exactly this took place and on what day. 
so that skeptics later would be able to read Luke's gospel and run into something that they just couldn't speak against. All the evidence was right there. They could go and check it out for themselves. John wrote for a different purpose. John's gospel and then also the letter of 1 John were written particularly in response to a false teaching regarding Jesus. John actually states this very explicitly in 1 John chapter 2. He says, I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. The false teaching that John was writing against as he wrote his gospel and 1 John didn't have a name at the time, but later we would come to call it how it's known now, Gnosticism. Among the many things that Gnosticism taught falsely was this idea. Physical matter, the material world, our bodies are inherently evil, sinful, bad. Spiritual things, such as our souls, our minds, are inherently pure and good. Gnosticism taught that Jesus had not really become incarnate, that he had maybe taken up a body to be in this world to teach us spiritual truth, but Gnostics taught that the resurrection was a lie. After all, why would Jesus put on that evil, sinful, gross body again after having been freed from it? You can kind of think of Gnosticism as the matrix, If anybody's seen The Matrix, where you've got these people who come to realize that their bodies are actually a a, a kind of a prison, that the world that they're perceiving is not the real world, that there's something greater and beyond. And maybe you haven't seen The Matrix, so maybe those references are just flying right over your head. But this is the gospel that Gnosticism taught. Free yourself from the physical, the evil, polluting influences of the physical world, become spirit, free your mind. John wrote his gospel and his first letter to warn Christians about this false teaching. We heard this in our first reading. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. The Gnostics did not acknowledge Jesus. They denied Jesus. And that that doesn't mean that they said that Jesus didn't exist, right? They thought that Jesus existed. They thought that he had taught some very good things, but they refused to acknowledge Jesus because they didn't understand what sin and salvation really were. The Gnostics thought that you were going to save yourself through esoteric special knowledge spiritual knowledge, right? You are going to be saved by coming to realize that this physical world was an illusion, was sinful and bad and wrong and evil, and you were supposed to free your mind, free your spirit from its polluting influence. The Gnostics thought that knowledge was going to be what saved them. That's what this word Gnosticism means. Gnosis in Greek is knowledge. So Gnosticism, knowledgeism, Gnostics, the knowledge people. The Gnostics believed that salvation came down to knowing the right special, secret things. Things which the unperceiving masses did not understand, but which you, privileged hearer, saw, perceived, understood, were wise enough to capture. You can kind of see why this false teaching could worm its way into the church. 
because we do preach a message that is described in the Bible as a revealed secret, a revelation, something that the world does not know. Truth from God. You understand why this this Gnostic gospel of special knowledge and esoteric truth can get so easily confused with the Christian gospel. For a Gnostic, though, the way to be a good person looked very different from what Scripture describes as the life of the believer. For a Gnostic, the way to be a good person was to continue mining for your your spiritual truths, your esoteric knowledge, and then show off that knowledge. Again, the Gnostics thought that this physical world was an evil, polluted, wrong thing. And so the idea for them of love, love shown to your neighbor, love shown to help someone else, really didn't make any sense. At most, the Gnostics said, what you want to do is share your knowledge, right? Share your esoteric special secrets with the world, but share what you have with your neighbor. Why? You're just a meat sack. They're just a meat sack. Try and free their mind. Forget about their body. This is not what the scripture teaches the life of the believer. But we see it all over the place. I think about Gnosticism a lot these days. I think about Gnosticism a lot when I look at our culture and I see more and more of this culture where people are only willing to believe the conclusions that they come to, that they uncover. I think about Gnosticism more and more these days as I see our culture where people are readily more and more willing to share their hot political takes on Facebook and share the contents of their wallet with someone who's in need. I look at our culture where this the bar for being a good neighbor to your neighbors kind of keeps sinking lower and lower, right? Until basically a good neighbor is somebody who, who doesn't bother me, who keeps their music down and keeps their yard tidy, who doesn't involve their physical body with my physical body, who, who stays away from me. That, that's a good neighbor? I look at our culture, I look at our society, I see this idea that's obsessed with Again, gaining this special knowledge, sharing special secret knowledge, and obsessed with devaluing, with failing to appreciate physicality, connectedness, community, neighborliness. I don't know, maybe if you take this lens of Gnosticism and you look at our culture, do you see the same things that I do? Do you see a world that constantly dangles in front of you this thought, you don't know enough? You don't know the truth. This world that's constantly rabbit-holing you to try and dig all that stuff out, to figure it out, to do your research. This world that constantly tries to inflame you by telling you that someone else thinks differently than you. Right? Someone disagrees with you politically, economically, whatever it might be, and that's enough of a reason for you to hate that person. That's Gnosticism. The idea that knowledge is your savior, well, then yeah, I guess knowledge is something that I'm going to get upset about. You look at our culture and you see Gnosticism. When you see this world where our neighbors aren't people we're really involved with anymore. Where we don't know what's going on around us, where we don't involve in our community. Where the world fails, fails to value people as they really are, right? Full people, body and soul. This is the world John was writing to. 
that this is the mindset, the philosophy of the world that John was writing to, that John was trying to combat. It's the philosophy of our world as well. It's been the philosophy of this world ever since the fall. Gnosticism is just kind of the default human assumption. It was the original temptation, wasn't it? Do your own research. Grab that apple. See what happens. This is where this reading from John's Gospel finally takes us. Not into this Gnostic Gospel, this Gospel of of special esoteric knowledge, of things that we have to keep going and uncovering. The Gospel of Jesus at work in the world. When John saw Jesus at work, John saw a different world breaking into ours. John saw God on earth making water into wine so that a couple could have a happy wedding day. That's what's happening here. That's all that's happening, and that's enough. John saw a man who didn't need to receive credit for what he was doing, right? Who didn't feel the need to trumpet it out on his Facebook page. Did you notice that Jesus doesn't even get the credit at the time for this miracle? The master of the banquet pulls the groom over and says, Hey, buddy, awesome. And Jesus does not care. For him, this act of love, this act of love that that made that day better for that couple, that's enough for him. That's what's going on in this text. For Jesus, this act of love that enriches the life of another person, that's what he's here to do. That's what we're going to see unfolding as we keep on walking through the book of John Now following Jesus, right? Getting to see him at work. Embodied love. John spent three years following Jesus around, watching love walk around in our world, healing and comforting and speaking and caring, providing, sharing. Finally, dying. Love in a body, dying for us. So years after all that, John wrote those words we heard at the beginning. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That's love. That's love. Laying down your life for another, John tells us. Showing love for no other reason than you're going to show love to this particular person. We don't need the world to define love for us. We don't need the world to tell us that love is going to be about finding our special knowledge, sharing that. This is love. Love doesn't take our bodies off and look for some other way to show love. Love is sharing what we have with those who need. Love is what we're doing right now. It's gathering physically together with one another to hear the word of our Savior. Love is coming together to receive his tangible forgiveness in the body and blood of Jesus and the bread and wine. Celebrate the gift of baptism. Each time a new child is brought into God's family. These things are love. As we live in Christ, we live in love. Jesus is love. Jesus is God. God is love. His love is lived out physically. In the waters of baptism. And the gift of the supper, the mutual consolation of the saints, as our confessions would call it. Let's live out embodied love as we follow the Savior who died for us. Amen.
I invite you to stand. Before we continue with the Nicene Creed this morning, hear these words once again from John's letter. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome these things because the one who is, greater, who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Amen. We confess the Nicene Creed. <clears throat> 